Mark 10, verse 32. And they, Jesus, his 12 disciples, and a lot of other pilgrims are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate one of their greatest festivals of the year. They don't know it, but Jesus does. He's on his way to his death. He starts to tell them this. Hey, I am going to be betrayed. The Gentiles and the Roman generals are going to beat me. They're going to kill me. But I will rise three days later. And the pilgrims have been singing songs on the dusty road in the heat on their way to Jerusalem. And they have been thinking thoughts of this is the festival where we remember that God saved our ancestors from the pagan oppressors, Egypt. That exodus is being celebrated now as we go to Jerusalem. God's going to save us from the Romans. This is their thinking. And they're following the guy who's been changing lives, the guy who's gaining a following, the guy who's showing promise to be the new Moses to take them out of their pagan oppressors and into a united kingdom that's independent and free. And so Jesus says this, and they don't get it. All they're hearing is, yeah, when we get to Jerusalem, we know it's going to be awesome. So in verse 35 Two of his twelve, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We chuckle, but we sometimes pray this way. And Jesus says to them rather graciously, What do you want me to do for you? Well, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. In other words, when you're on the throne, I'm your right hand man and I'm your left hand man. So Jesus tells them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And of course, they say we are able. And they're probably thinking of cups made of gold, a chalice with jewels, sitting at a kingdom banquet. Of course, they are able to drink that cup. Who wouldn't? Well, Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, we're looking at these guys saying, idiots. He just told us that he's going to go die. And you guys are like, yeah, yeah, forget about that servant thing, that whole humility thing. We want to be in charge. You're like, oh, my goodness. But the other 10, when they heard this, they were jealous. They were thinking, oh, brown nosers. We wanted that spot. So now they're thinking how they can take them down so that they can get ahead of James and John in the sitting at his right and left hand waiting list. So in 41, they heard it. They began to be indignant at James and John. But Jesus knows our hearts. He calls them to him and said to them, Okay, guys, take a deep breath. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. Now, to a Jew, Gentile, it, it, the word's very similar to dog in, their, in, in the cultural language. Um, they see Gentiles as just pagan, worthless people. So Jesus is talking about their rulership system. 
The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones show their power because they exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Do you want to be like a Gentile? Oh, no, no, no. Then stop this game of who's going to be on top of who. That's what Gentiles do. You guys in my kingdom are going to think very differently. So 43, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. James and John are feeling like they are pretty low now. (laughs) For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We have a mentality sometimes that it's our job to go save the world. And with that daunting task, the church has at times taken that mission upon themselves. And because we are cracked, broken clay vessels, us human beings, we know that this task is beyond us. And we're doing something wrong because it's not happening. So we're tempted to overreach our boundaries in order to gain the power appropriate to save the world. James and John are examples of this. And the church of this period... A.D. 300 to roughly 1450, what we call the medieval church. We're taking the whole hunk at once. They felt the same way, seeking like James and John to rule the world through power and position. But now watch this. Remember, James and John asked Jesus In verse 35, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And in verse 36, Jesus answers them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, look at this next scene. 46, and they came to Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, weakling, scum of the social ladder, unable to do anything for himself, but ask others to give him his daily bread. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, not do for me whatever I ask of you. No, from a different position, he's asking Jesus to have mercy on him. I need all the help I can get from you. And so Jesus, in verse 48, uh, well, first, many rebuked this blind man, telling him to be silent. Shh, you're embarrassing us. You shouldn't be seen with a man this great. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. Call him. Now, our weaknesses, we like to keep on the roadside. We like to keep them quiet. We like people not to see those parts of us. The church does not want the culture at large to see those parts of us. So we cover up, we pretend, and all we do is put on the the hypocrisy mask. And people see right through it. We want that Bartimaeus to be quiet, but he keeps calling. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You guys telling him to be quiet? You be quiet. Call him to me. 
And Bartimaeus comes, of course, with help. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. Verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, same question he asked James and John, he now asks the blind beggar, What do you want me to do for you? Man, far from his request, is sit at your right hand. And he instead asks, Rabbi, I just want to see. Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That's a contrast for you. Some people see Jesus as is someone who can be used for leverage and power and position. Another sees him as his only hope to get basic necessities, just to see. Well, the medieval times, we saw the church more like James and John than blind Bartimaeus. Which is ironic because the church wasn't launched in this way. Last week, we looked at the way of patience and the way that the church was birthed with absolute agonizing patience, that they were concerned not with evangelizing everybody they meet, but the people they know, one or two at a time. And as they get interested in Jesus, they come and go through a rigorous multi-year process before they're baptized because the early church was convinced that what would save the world was our Christian character, not our beliefs and our intellectualism. So they spent years to depaganize those coming out of a Roman culture, teach them the mind of Christ, watch them practice the life of Christ, and then the church was being built ever so patiently and slowly and agonizingly several year blocks at a time. One friend here, one neighbor there, one person from the gym over there. Patience. And it gradually grew despite the fact that there's no reason to. (laughs) Christians gain nothing socially, lost everything for becoming a Christian, and the church had absolutely no evangelistic method. We have no record of them saying this is how to evangelize, and when they taught new converts how to evangelize, there's no record of them showing them how to do that. They were not eager on getting everyone to believe at once, but getting the people they knew to believe one at a time so that the church could grow, as Jesus said, like a seed, like the leaven in the lump, just just moving throughout and influencing gradually, but thoroughly. Patience was their virtue. They wrote, by the way, more on patience than any other virtue early on. But then they became impatient. We've, We've got to get everybody to church now. We've got to convert everybody. We've got to have power and authority what happened? So, let's go down the road a little bit. The Roman Empire has many. We're now 300 years after Jesus. Uh, they have a few civil wars. When one Caesar, when emperor would die, sometimes it wasn't the best succession plan. You know, people didn't go to the polls and vote. Um, basically, the strongest man became the next emperor. And so in this particular, particular year, 312 A.D. Constantine 
is a general of the army, and there's other generals of the Roman army all fighting each other for the throne to be Caesar of the world. Well, on the eve of his battle as he nears Rome, Constantine has a vision in which there is a sign and a voice says, conquer in this sign. Now, we don't know exactly what the sign was, but it's believed that it was either a cross or the first two letters of the name Christ. But whatever it was, Constantine Constantine seems to associate this promise to conquer in this sign with the Christian God. So he goes forth into battle. He's successful. He becomes the next emperor of Rome. And so he there realizes, I must give homage to this Christian God. So, the Edict of Milan is passed. The church had just before this time gone through a very, very intense time of persecution. One of the most violent yet. And when Constantine takes the throne and recognizes that he must give homage to the Christian God, he passes the Edict of Milan, which says, no more persecution of Christians. They must be given fair treatment. That's how it starts. Then gradually, as he rules, he begins to favor the Christians. He gives them Sunday off. Weekends were not a thing in the back in the day. But Constantine invented Sunday as a holiday every week. He then gave the church's tax exemption. He gave some of the pagan temples to Christian groups to make them their churches. Constantine began to do what he can to give the church help and momentum. Now, we often say that he's the first Christian emperor, but there's actually no evidence that Constantine was a Christian. He just liked Christians. In fact, he, was nev- he never submitted to baptism until his deathbed when he was finally baptized. Remember, this is an era where the church took baptism seriously, that you were baptized once you showed your seriousness to Christ. The fact he never submitted to baptism meant he also didn't submit to the teachings of the church. Many bishops were afraid to call him out on some of his ways because how dare you call out the emperor? Would you do that? You might. Some other people may not. There was this weird relationship that was now formed with the rest of the pagan world, Christians, and this emperor who's favoring them so they don't want to upset, but he's yet not really exactly on board with the entire Christian way of life. So what begins to happen over time is the church sees immediate changes. Um, rather than meeting in private homes and, and getting word out to people on a no face-to-face basis, gradually and taking them through multi-year conversion process, now suddenly churches are in public places. Sundays are given to them. And people begin coming to the churches in droves. It's become the kind of popular thing, the thing in fashion. Wow, the emperor is into this. Let's check it out. And so churches began to get packed. People began wanting to become Christians. And so where the church had this patient process of bringing and guiding people into life change, into their baptism, suddenly they're overwhelmed with more people wanting baptized than they have the resources or ability to disciple these people. And so they're coming in at droves. And now, rather than having people who have legitimately gone through the stages of learning how to live like Christ, we have a ton of people in the churches that are now baptized And they have not quite yet learned the difference between paganism and Christianity. So the name Christian, it begins to be sort of a title that people are willing to have. We know from archaeology that a lot of Christians never actually fully converted. 
there are tombstones in which there are emblems of Christianity, like a cross, and then pagan emblems on the same tombstone. Then there are records of Christians attending the gladiatorial events, which were all in homage to the gods and, of course, murder and lots of violence. And there are also reports of Christians when they got ill, frustratingly to the priests, uh, that rather than coming to the church for prayer, they would go to the pagan temples to ask for the little magical rituals that they were used to getting when they were ill. So we see that there are these trends where people are coming to the church and talking about Jesus, but they're not quite converted. They're still living their pagan lifestyle. This is a, a word called syncretism, where you're trying to put all things in culture in sync together. So Jesus, the church, Christianity basically becomes this thing they add onto their lives. Furthermore, the worship experience was beginning to change. Incense was brought into the church services because incense was burned to the emperor. So the emperor... Constantine's leaving his mark now in the churches. Um, rather than calling them fathers or bishops, they're now called priests because those are the people that were in charge of the pagan temples. They were called priests. Rather than calling it the table of the Lord, they transformed that into the altar because that's what the pagan temples had. So Constantine is brilliantly smart in that he wants a glue to keep the empire together. So he uses Christianity and mingles it a little bit with paganism so that everyone's happy. And this, the church, is enduring, but not everyone. Some are ecstatic. In fact, not even some, most are ecstatic. I give you this little, what I'm telling you about Constantine, you're thinking, oh, no, this sounds bad. But wait a minute, think about this. You have been in a serious a time of persecution and finally the inconceivable happens the emperor who's considered one of the gods of the roman deities suddenly becomes a christian your mind is blown this was not supposed to happen this was impossible he's a christian and now he's not just like a closet christian like most of our presidents claim to be <laughs> he's actually like declaring this and he's giving us favor what in the world is going on and so their wildest dreams are coming true like this is this is unbelievable so so many christians began to believe this was the kingdom of god come to earth this is how god did it he has come to us through this king this is it people and so they celebrated like they were in the golden age and <laughs> they're not about to question the emperor's conversion. They're so happy to believe it. That they're doing whatever the emperor wants. They're happy to have the cooperation of the state. I need you guys to imagine what it would be like if one of our presidents, rather than kind of playing the Christian part because it's cultural, one of our presidents actually comes on live TV as a press conference and all the major news networks are, are casting this live and he says, I had an experience last night. I heard Greg Laurie preach the gospel and I realized that I'm a sinner, <laughs> that I need a savior. And I accepted Jesus. You know, he goes into the whole thing. And you would be, like, your jaw would be dropping, like, whoa. And he starts preaching on camera, right? Telling people that they need Jesus and how and why. You'd be like, you guys would all, in unison, this is the best present we've had. This is it. The church is going to finally win our culture again. That's how we would feel. That's how they felt. But we see what actually ended up happening is when Christianity was given power, they were incapable of using it well. The church was never meant to be the rulers of the earth. 
That's God's job. We were meant to be his agents undercover, bringing light into darkness until God saved the world. But when the church gets power, we get hungry to save the world. And then we get ruthless and ugly. So, not just because of Constantine, but after Constantine, other emperors, we would see things like this going back and forth. Christians would burn pagan temples. Temples would, uh, pagans would slaughter Christians. There was some bloodshed. Christians going back. There, it was not pretty because the Christians began to get more and more power and felt like it was their right to make others come to the faith. And so there was an ugly period. Well, this sounds a lot like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Suddenly the church had this idea, hey, we have an emperor now, let us come together and make bricks and let's build the kingdom of God up as high as we can and let's get everybody to join this as possible, even those worthless people, everyone. And they're building this thing higher and higher and higher and higher. But we know that the Tower of Babel is not God's model. He said, be fruitful and, and spread and grow gradually over the earth. They say, no, let's build it up high and be powerful so we can rule the earth. Christianity is back in Genesis chapter 11. Well, time goes on. The Roman Empire weakens. You have the Germanic hordes beginning to invade on the west. You have the Vandals, the Barbarians. You have all of these different regions outside of the empire beginning to press in. So, eventually, after a series of attacks, Rome is completely weak, 476 AD, so we're like, you know, 200-ish years after Constantine. Um, Rome, the city, falls. And with the city falling, fell Western civilization. You don't understand. These are people outside of the civilized Roman Empire invading hordes of darkness and chaos and violence. And they take over the civilized world, and it falls and it collapses this, was a, this is where we call it the Dark Ages. This was a violent, brutal time. Literacy is out the window. People don't read and write. The old works of old are gone because these barbarians don't care. They have a different life. This is where we get very interested because uh, suddenly Constantine doesn't look like a bad guy anymore. Because he established a system in which civilization would continue in the church. These barbarians come in, and rather than attacking the church, the church sends missionaries to convert them. So the barbarians will attack everything but the churches. And now the churches become these cathedrals of shelter. For people in a chaotic world where civilization has crumbled, they can now find food, they can find acceptance, they can find shelter, they can find housing, they can find order in a world that's gone mad right there in the church. Civilization continues there. And the church is responsible for carrying light through these dark times so that the world could be re-civilized. It was an awesome responsibility, but it was also brutal. So, you've got to fight to defend life. You've got these barbarians whom you're converting. Well, guess what happens to them? They just bring their violent ways into Christianity. So now the seeds of violence are sprung in the church. And it's being grown up on this backbone now. And the church begins to grow and grow and have power. And the world begins to get more and more civilized again. And it's becoming to be more like Rome used to be. And now there's nations beginning to be formed 
And the church is growing in power with the crown the whole time. As kings rise up and governments rise up, the church has been there all along. And they and the kings are hand in hand starting to rule the civilized world. Well, the cathedral of shelter, of strength, of keeping things going now becomes the prison of oppression as the church begins to be powerful and hungry and being brought up on these vandals and these uh, uh, Germanic hordes and these barbarians, the violence is ready to blossom. Because coinciding this growing up of Western civilization with the church is another movement over in the East and spreading through Africa and threatening to come into Europe through Spain. It's called Islam. And they are sweeping the rest of the world fast with their violence. And so the church feels under attack. And so now comes their old barbarian roots coming out. Let's get them. So, to, uh, there's a couple of reasons that what we now know as the Crusades happened. The Crusades were the 1100s to the 1200s. One, they needed to protect Christendom. Two, they wanted to bring Jerusalem back. Three, they wanted to offer people salvation. Take up the sword, go fight. Okay, these are actual writings from this time period. Listen to this. This is Pope Urban II. This is right as the first crusade is about to launch. He says, Pope Urban II, I say it to those who are present. I command that it be said to those who are absent. Christ commands it. All who go thither, thither and lose their lives be it on the road or on the sea, or in the fight against the pagans, will be granted immediate forgiveness for their sins. This I grant to all who will march by virtue of the great gift which God has given me. Wow. So the Pope by now is in full power. What he says goes for the church. How did the Pope get into this power? The same way that the church was important. People needed someone to rally around. Some people needed someone to help distribute food and to give order into a world that was in constant flux and violence and chaos. So the top leader of the top city, Rome, obviously he's going to help us. And thus the Pope begins to get power and gradually he becomes this figure that now says one word and the church obeys. He says this, people go to the Crusades. Now, here's an account from somebody who was at the Crusades in Jerusalem. Listen to the tone. If you had been there, you would have seen our feet colored to our ankles with the blood of the slain. But what more shall I relate? None of them were left alive. Neither women nor children were spared. Afterward, all clergy, laymen, went to the sepulcher of the Lord and his glorious temple. That's in Jerusalem. We went in there singing. With fitting humility, they repeated prayers and made their offering at the holy places they had long desired to visit. So they're just coming back from slaughtering women and children, Muslims and Jews ankles covered in blood, and they're now in these churches singing, yay, we finally have the land back. Isn't that disgusting? This is what happens when a people who are meant to be 
weaklings, depending upon the strength of God, sinners who recognize are forgiven only by grace and not by their amazing accomplishments, people who are supposed to be bringing light into darkness, when suddenly we give them all of the things they need to rule the world, we can get a little bit dizzy up top. It's like we weren't made to be up there. The tower's built, and we're at the top, and we're looking down saying, oh my goodness, people aren't joining us yet? What's that tower there? Go get them, boys. But up there is like the altitude or something. Not you guys, right? We're used to that. But it's just like, it's getting to us, and we begin to lose sight of what even is a Christian. Furthermore, of course, how many of these leaders are truly Christians? Because the church at this point has now been brought up for years and years upon nominalism. Just, we believe this, rather than we've been through this multi-year process of baptism to the fact that we actually live it. See, patience had been traded for impatience and power. This is how we got ugly. This is how these things happened. Brothers and sisters, um, we would never know that James and John's request to set Jesus' right and left hand would continue on and on and that we wouldn't get that Jesus says the son of man came to serve not to be served to give his life but to sit at my right and left hand is not mine to give but my father in heaven who did the father give the right to sit at his right and left hand in his glory ironically it's there just a week later as Jesus is on the cross, at his right and left hand are two others who are crucified. Jesus' point is this is the crown the church was given, not Constantine's crown, but a crown of thorns. This is the throne we were meant to rise on, the throne of suffering, of sacrifice, of giving our lives of service to the world, not of bringing them under our feet so we can put them up on them. Dangerous thing when you give religion power. Well, there's one hope that through all of this, there was one thing that was going on. It's called monasticism. Monasteries. When Caesar took, uh, when Constantine became Caesar, took the throne and granted all of this to the church, they said, something fishy is going on around here. And while all the world's flocking to the church, these people ran from the church. And they said, whatever this is, it's not the church of Christ anymore. We're going out into the wilderness. Anthony was the first. Anthony of Egypt, he's credited as being the first. He went out into the wilderness so that he can finally clear his mind from the chaos going on. And there he wrestled. He has this long account of how he wrestled these demons. And then he finds peace with God. And people start coming out to him because they're hearing about his holiness. They're like, what is it, this guy? And more people, you know, and he goes deeper in the wilderness trying to get away from them. They start coming to him. Finally, he has to give in. And these communities start to form of people leaving the cities and leaving this fakeness and coming to find a true way to seek God. And these communities are rigorous because there's no more martyrdom. There's no more suffering. We're going to bring it upon ourselves. So we're going to beat our bodies when we sin. We're going to live on a diet of bread and water. We're going to own only two items, the cloak on our back and the mat on which we sleep. This was early monasticism. 
They're the ones who said, I see what's going on, and it does not fit in with this. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, which heaven and earth will bow before. But Jesus first... He's in the form of God, but did not count that equality of God a thing to be grasped, or other translations say a thing to be exploited. In other words, his godness was not something like a trump card he used on people. Oh yeah, well, I'm God. Never saw that. He never used that card in the game. Instead, he took the form of a servant. He's already stepped down to be man. Now he's stepping down to be a servant, and now death on a cross. A form of execution done by Rome, which is only permissible upon people who were not Roman citizens, often given to slaves and those who were direct enemies of Caesar himself. (laughs) That's the lowest death you can get. That's the one he had. Jesus, in other words, comes all the way down to the lowest place, even death itself. Whereas we see the church trying to get all the way up even to the throne itself. And we see what it leads to. It leads to cathedrals where building these buildings are more important than building people, and these crusades where fighting is more important than serving. These these early monastics realized that this upward trend is not the gospel's trend. The gospel moves downward, and there God gives it his presence, and there he exalts it, and there he gives it life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and so forth. And so they try to do what they can in this situation. They go out to the wilderness. Well, you go forward to the 500s now. And um, you have this guy named Benedict who begins his own monastery, but this time he establishes a rule. He writes a book. This is what I require of people who want to be in this monastery. First of all, you have to be totally committed to it. No coming to visit and then saying, eh, I'm going to that one, or eh, I quit. No, this is a life calling Second, we're all going to share in the labor together. Everyone's going to cook food. Everyone's going to clean the bathroom. Everyone's going to take out the trash. We're going to take turns doing it so that no one is above the other. And then everyone's going to be in obedience to our rule. And then fourth, this is a place of prayer. And so under Benedict's monastery was um, established what's called the church order. You might know the the eight hours of prayer. And they got it because Psalm 119 said, seven times a day I will rise to praise you. And then another part of Psalm 119 says, and I will also rise at midnight to praise you. 
So starting early in the morning and then for six other parts during the day. And then at midnight, they would gather in the chapel and they would pray. They would sing the Psalms so many times that they completed the Psalter every week. So that in only a matter of time, these guys knew the entire book of Psalms. They would then recite much of other scripture eight times a day. They're doing this every day. And then as parents would drop off children to be schooled in the ways of God at these monasteries, they had to learn to teach these kids. And so the monasteries began to become a place of hospitals where people who had injuries or needed medicine would come to the monasteries. They also became hostels where travelers who needed a place to stay could stay and the monastery would give them Christ's hospitality. These became beacons of light in a world where you couldn't trust many people, where barbarians were killing and slaughtering and the world was up in arms for who's going to lead it. These were established, consistent places where scripture was continually prayed and read and people were welcomed and helped. And the monastery succeeded because they were the calm, quiet ones praying while the rest of the church was trying to conquer the world they were like, well, we'll just keep praying. And so new movements of monasteries developed. Um, one in particular, the Franciscans. So the 1200s, you know, while the Crusades are happening over in Jerusalem, a young man in France doesn't really want his dad's business. So he takes the money his dad gives him and he's throwing it at this little church that needs to be rebuilt. When his dad finds out where the money's going, he's livid. Son, I'm setting you up to take over my business. We are going down to that church and asking for the money back. So his dad marches the young man to the church and asks for the money back. But rather than cooperating or repenting, the young man whose name is Francis rips off the only clothes he has on, hands them to his dad and says, you keep the inheritance, and walks out into the woods naked. That's a statement. Soon, um, this, this kid living out in the woods, all rebel, all rebel kids dream, I guess, begins to get a following. All the other kids running from home or something. <laughs> but they, they seek Francis out. And they too deny all their stuff. They've sought absolute poverty. We're going to live off the earth. We only, only have the clothes on our back. We're going to own nothing. In fact, it's said that one time someone, one of the um, followers came to Francis excited about a gold coin, a single gold coin. He said that you should put between your teeth and stick it in a pile of dung because that's where it belongs. That was his attitude toward money. And so this following begins, and Francis was known as talking to trees and singing to flowers and preaching to birds and exhorting animals and even giving bees a little bit of wine to keep them going during the winter. He took care of all creatures, and it said he mourned when he crushed an ant or a bug, and he began to call them his brothers and sisters. Francis was one who appreciated nature as the true cathedral. Well, the church is building these magnificent buildings and calling that the cathedral and trying to save the world. Francis is like, I'm already in the world and I am going to appreciate this cathedral. Um, they then begin to move into the cities, in and out of the woods in the cities, and they go not to the higher classes, but to the poor. 
They began to hang out and to help the poor because they looked like the poor. And there they befriended the poor. And thus, um, this movement begins to happen. Francis then goes to Rome to talk to the Pope because he wants to establish this as an official monastic order. He comes up to the Pope, and the Pope takes one look at him and says, why don't you go play with the pigs? Because that is what you look like. He's probably got hippie hair, rags for clothes, smells like he's into organic by body products. Um, so he does. He goes and wallows with the pigs, plays in the mud, comes back to the Pope. You imagine in, in the Vatican, he's, he's just drenched in this mud, smelling like pig. And he says, Father, I've done what you asked. Now do what I ask. And the Pope looked at this guy and said, he is serious. And he granted that his movement becomes an official monastic order, which we now know as the Franciscans. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know a whole lot about our Pope, but I believe he took the name Francis because he's of the Franciscan order. Um, anyways, for what that's worth. Um, the, but see, here's, here's a shining light in the midst of a lot of things the church was doing wrong. We see these groups of people that devoted themselves to not getting caught up in the rat race and the power and the, we're going to save the world. They just formed these communities that said, we're going to serve the world. You know what? We may save it through our service, but that's the emphasis. It's moving down, not moving up. We're going to take the world and save it. No, we're going to serve the world. And, you know, for what they are, there's, there's other things to say that they could do better at monasteries, but, and I'm not saying you should join a monastery at all. I'm not saying that monasteries in the present are doing the best work, um, but that's just this is a whole other discussion. But the idea, though, that they're not going to get in the rat race, shake Caesar's hand and say, we've done it. They're just going to keep on going the way of Christ. So we see in the Gospels a wild man coming out from the wilderness who begins preaching the kingdom of God's at hand. Prepare the way. John the Baptist was a Jewish monastic who spent, lived on raggedy clothes, camel hair, a sparse diet, and he was obviously a man of prayer who saw that the time was near. Christ is here. Jesus has this trend. Now, he didn't go live in the wilderness. He did visit it for 40 days, but he was with people. He had his disciples, but we see this trend in Jesus's life where he would be with people and do ministry, and then he would disappear. People would have to find him. Where is he? Oh, he's alone on the mountain. Before choosing his 12, he was on the mountain all night in prayer. In John chapter 6, when he feeds the 5,000 and multiplies the fish and the loaves, it says that they said, this is the prophet who's to come. And it it said that Jesus sensed they were going to make him king. So he, well, you know what most people would do. He ran back up the mountain and hid from them. Jesus was following that monastic trend The idea of, I'm not getting involved in this power play. I'm going to continue to let God work in my weakness, if he had any, but that's the model. I'm going to continue to pray. Brothers and sisters, we're in a time where the church is seeking desperately to gain the power it once had. We feel like we're being pushed onto the edges of society. And I fear that if we don't handle this time properly, we're going to become crusade-like again. 
We live in a time where we need people to follow the way of John the Baptist, the way of Jesus, the way of, of Anthony of Egypt or of, of Benedict or of St. Francis and say, you know what? This is all going on. It's not our world. It's our Father's world. We're not going to go out on this crusade to save the world. We're going to go as servants to serve the world. And we're going to find, rather than building our towers or our kingdoms or our babels, which makes no sense to anyone anyways, we're going to go build places of prayer. And it's going to be at this area, at this time in my workplace, or this part of our home, or this part of my free time, I'm going to find these niches of time and these pockets and places and geography to say, this is where I seek my Lord in silence. I let the chaos of my ambitions and my selfishness and my seeking, hungry, thirsty, desperate desires for hunger, uh, for power, and I'm going to put those aside, and I'm going to let God be that calm, quiet, still, small voice, which is not in a hurry and moving patiently but powerfully in the earth. I'm going to connect with him. We need a church that is willing to stop the rat race, to stop competing with corporate America to make the church look like another successful business with a great product. And we need people who are willing to say, let's pull back a little bit and let's be the light rather than trying to create light with our sticks. There is an inner Franciscan within all of us. There is an inner Bartimaeus who's asking not for the world, but just for eyes to see it as it is, for light to be it in it as he is. Brothers and sisters, if we do not have a regular prayer life, now's the time more than ever. Lest we're going to sound just like one of the two parties that are squabbling. We usually do. We take a side and we squabble just like them. Really step back for a minute. Don't be political for a second. Just look at it like it's silly. Why are you joining that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vote, have your political opinion. But seriously, why are we sounding like Democrats or Republicans in the way we talk? That's not Christ. That's shaking the hand of Caesar, hoping that one of these parties will get us into power again. We need to just be Christians who are willing to pray and let our Father's world unfold as it will. Who are willing to even be in nature every now and then to remember that this world is not about what we make, but about what he has made and given us. So that we can move at the pace of creation, which I've never seen a bird, Jesus said this, I've never seen a bird worry about what it's going to eat, or a flower dressed in rags. Even Solomon wasn't arrayed as beautifully as one of these, he said. I've never seen trees straining and striving and panicking about their growth. They're not in a hurry about it, they're just growing. And in years, they make a forest. And that draws people's attention. Not a tree that grows up real fast. And then, yeah, you're too skinny and too tall. And fall over in the strongest wind. We don't need those. We have a lot of that going on. We don't need that. We need forests that pass on the gospel from generation to generation. And maybe, maybe we'll see those millennials that are leaving the church, right? Those people you always hear about. Maybe we'll see them not because maybe they'll see that the church isn't just this rat race and this game of power, but it's actually authentic broken people who allow the power of Christ in their lives. They're, they're real with each other. So um, let's be a people of prayer. who are willing to say, God, this is where I messed up and I'm not going to hide it. I'm just going to invite your power into it. God, I was planning to do this, and this was my ambition, but you know what? I'm going to surrender that to your will. 
Let you give me the path. I don't have to knock that person out of my way. You're going to make it for me. God, this person who needs their life fixed, and I want to be the savior in their life, I realize that if I come too forcibly upon them, they may never listen to me again. Help me be patient with this person. This is how prayer forms us. And this is what we need as a body 